I am going to work hard to dial back my natural showmanship because we actually have some important things to do today and I'm not here just to make you laugh. I also learned Nick Cannon is crazy. We'll talk about that on this week's Corey Truax Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be happening. And I think you would agree the best thing is that it's happening to you and me. Many of you probably just quit. Hey man, if you're concerned about making us laugh, you don't really ever do that, so you should just stop worrying. And to which I'd say, that's very hurtful, number one. But second, I know you're right, and I appreciate you thinking so in your own mind. Welcome to the Corey Act Show. Glad you're here. We really do have a lot to do today, and I am going to have to dial back my natural, my natural uh, talk show host, my radio talk show host, because the topics I'm going to give you, I will admit, there's danger in me just sounding like the typical conservative right-winger and not sounding distinct, which I want to do. I want to be someone who sounds distinct, coming at the culture, sometimes politics, but not really a lot of politics today, coming at the culture and the conversations the culture is having, coming at them in a way that sounds distinct, sounds Christian, doesn't sound right or left or Democrat or Republican, but sounds different. And that's going to take some effort today, and you'll see why here in just a moment. First, if you don't know, you're listening to the Court Act Show and his radio talk, 91.9 and 92.9. Thank you for listening there or wherever you find the podcast. I am also the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. And let me tell you something. We finished week one of a brand new series. We're going to go through the entire book of Revelation. I am glad that I'm not the one teaching it because it's hard. And week one was incredible. I learned so much stuff. And as I learn more about it, I'll share it with you. I already have a fairly well-formed opinion on what the book of Revelation is and how it should be read, but I know I'm about to learn a lot, and so as I learn, we'll talk more about it over the coming year or so. I'm sure it will be that long. If you're going to treat that book properly, that's about how long it would take. You know, being into broadcasting like I am, and just a lot of public speaking, my day job, and all of my various and sundry roles, I often have a microphone in my face like I do right now. And when you're somebody who has a microphone in his face often, the thing you try to build is your lexicon or your vocabulary. And then you try to work on your own mental acuity so that once you learn all these words, you can have proper diction, that you can go grab that word from the database of your brain and use it effectively so that you don't sound like everyone else. So that when you want to say something is particularly bad, you can say that it's egregious. When you want to say something is... I don't know, large or big, you can say that it's a, a, a generous helping of, and you can say things in more creative ways. But what I'm about to share with you, I, I don't have language for, except this. This was the only word I could think of. This is bonkers. This is bonkers racist. I cannot, I could not believe what I was seeing. So here's the facts of the case. The portion of the Smithsonian, the Smithsonian is actually a series of museums, the portion of the Smithsonian that is dedicated to African-American history and culture, so that's the name of it, National Museum of African-American History and Culture, they put something up in their, on their Twitter feed and on their website, they've now taken it down, to their credit, they've taken it down, but when I saw it, I will admit I thought it had to be a parody, and if it was a parody, it was inappropriate and wrong, and I could not believe what I was seeing because, again, it's bonkers racist. So here is what they put up on their website and Twitter feed. 
In a series they have called Talking About Race, they put up a graphic that says aspects and assumptions of whiteness and white culture in the United States. And the little explainer says, white culture or whiteness refers to the way white people and their traditions and attitudes and ways of life have been normalized over time. And so they want you to recognize, uh, they say we have uh, internalized, some, some people of color have internalized aspects of white culture. And so they want you to be aware of ways that you've internalized white culture. So here we go. These are the things, some of the things, that the Smithsonian, that the, the museum, the National Museum of African American History and Culture, they call these things, I'm about to tell you, these are the things that make up white culture. Number one on the list, rugged individualism, self-reliance, independence, autonomy, that is not white. That's, that's just all human. I would maybe add that it is Western. You could say that it's of Western civilization. It's certainly not a white thing to be self-reliant and to believe in individualism and to think that non-white people are not autonomous and working from a level of individualism That's bonkers racist. How about this one? On their graphic, here's here's something of whiteness, something of white culture. An emphasis on the scientific method. Under that heading, objective, rational, linear thinking. Hold the phone. Objective thinking, rational thinking, linear thinking is white. What is the obvious counterfactual? According to the Smithsonian, subjective, irrational, non-linear thinking belongs to people of color. Under this heading, they call, they, they call the cause and reflect relationships or quantitative and data emphasis. The idea of wanting lots of information to quantify and use data for decision-making. The scientific method itself, that's a white thing. How is this any different than something Richard Spencer or David Duke would write? They would say, it's white people gave us the scientific method. They gave us rational thinking and individualism. That's a racist point. Not a, a point about whiteness to think of these things as particularly white. That is, again, uh, the only words I can come up, come up with. It's bonkers racist. And now I can feel myself, by the way, sounding like the typical talk radio host. And I promise you I'm coming back to something good, something deeper. But I have to put some emphasis on what they're saying here. They say, what's the next one here? Uh, the Protestant work ethic. The idea that hard work is the key to success that you should work before play, that if you didn't meet your goals, it probably means you didn't work hard enough, that these ideas are white ideas. How about some of these? I'm coming, I'm coming to something important, I promise. These are also white ideas. Planning for the future. Delaying gratification. 
planning for the future, by the, one, by the way, in one part, it's also biblical. And when I talk about biblical, I mean that's like super de-duper Hebrew. The idea of planning for the future, that's what you call the, the wise man in Proverbs. It's the sluggard that doesn't plan ahead. Delaying gratification is a, a fundamental uh, Middle Eastern idea as well, but it is, it is a Western idea that if you'll delay gratification and don't let yourself be driven by your passions, but instead plan ahead, delay gratification to get something better later, give up the immediate to get something better later, that's not white. That's wisdom. And cultures around the world, ask Asian cultures if they're about delay, delaying gratification. Chinese culture, Japanese culture. That is crazy racist to say that delaying gratification and planning for the future is a white thing. I, I just, I'm almost, I'm obviously not speechless. I have a talk show to do, but it's incredible to me that this could come out of the National Museum for African American History and Culture. Now, here's the last one I want to give you from this graphic, and I saved it last, la saved it for last on purpose. And then I have the deeper thoughts here underneath this news story that you probably heard somewhere else. They call family structure a white thing. It's of white culture that these things are true. The nuclear family, and they define nuclear family as father, mother, and 2.3 children. There's a reason for 2.3. If you care to know about it, email me. We'll talk about it. That idea... Husband, wife, kids. That's not white. That's every single civilization in human history. Sometimes it's been husband, wife, 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 kids. But the idea of the family, the nuclear family, being the center of society. That men grow up to take on a wife to, to love her well and provide for her to then procreate and create their own to create their own children and that family unit family structure that has happened on every continent for all of the history of human of humans on this planet it is not a white thing here's another very important thing it's God's design and then maybe mo and not that, that probably is most important it's God's design there's also this practical, functional reality. The greatest privilege isn't white privilege. The greatest, because there, there is white privilege, don't get me wrong. But the greatest privilege is that nuclear family privilege. The idea of saying to people of color that the nuclear family is not ideal, that it's just this white thing, it's destructive. I have all the data to show this, whether it's how many years spent in poverty, if it's educational attainment level, later in life with things like depression and anxiety, you could include a, a, a lot of different outcomes in life, uh, interactions with the criminal justice system. You could even include health outcomes, not just mental health outcomes, but physical health outcomes. There are consequences to single motherhood there are consequences to men leaving their families. There's consequence to divorce. I, I'll, I'll say that right now really boldly to anyone listening. If you're in a, and you're in a marriage and it's rocky at all, 
you have every reason to try to make it work, especially if you've already got kids. Fight tooth and nail to make it work because you will hurt your kids. There are consequences to the nuclear family falling apart. And if you want to see the consequences, go look around the United States of America. In particular, in particularly, go look around African-American culture. There's lots of other reasons for the problems in African-American culture in America. A lot of it has to do with systemic problems white people have caused for black people. But certainly the destruction of the nuclear family is not one of those. You look at immigrant statistics and it makes it so clear. When a, a, when a black family from another part of the world comes here and it's a married couple and you measure their kids' lives versus the, the, the child who comes out of, your typical African-American household right now is a single woman. That, that's your African-American household on average. It is well over half of black kids are born to single moms. You measure even the American black family with both parents in the household against the, the single-parent household, and you're going to see the stark reality and the stark difference. When you even measure two-parent households amongst Hispanic families, Asian families, white families, black families, just against each other, you will, you will see the advantage. You will see so many of the disadvantages that come with being a family of color diminished greatly by having a two-parent household. This is supposed to be this systemically, horrifically racist country, and we certainly have our problems. I, I've talked about those at, at length and in depth with racial inequity. But th- this type of messaging is going to only exasperate the problem because all of these qualities, having a nuclear family, rugged individualism, being responsible for yourself, Having a work ethic that says, yes, hard work is key to success. Success just doesn't happen. It takes a ton of work. Planning for the future, delaying gratification. There were some in here about following rigid time schedules. All of those things are the keys to success in this world. They're not white. They're just behaviors that lead to success. You could argue again that they are Western, that we have this Western culture, born out of Northern and Western Western Europe that came through a very important thing called the Reformation about 500 years ago that started to build the idea of non-collectivism, that people don't exist only in relation to their community, their family, their church, but people are responsible for themselves. They have an individual relationship for themselves with everyone else, and the individual started to be thought of as the as the building block of society. And there were some negative consequences to that, but also it built the world we all live in and love. This world that's brought so much prosperity, it comes out of Westernism. It wasn't the other cultures of the world that built all this prosperity. It was Westernism that doesn't only include white people. It's a set of ideas. It's not an ethnicity. And so that gets born out of the Reformation, and then refined by the Enlightenment in the 1760s, 70s, and 1780s to continue to build on individualism, but also that's actually what builds the scientific method. It builds the intellectual structure on which we have so much exploration and development. These ideas of uh, humanity being responsible for itself 
and, and breaking out of the old structures of, what do we call that? Some kind of determinism that the, the status at which you live, uh, I, I got to stop for a second. We take for granted, because we've lived in it for so long, we take for granted the idea that you can be responsible for yourself, work hard, and go make your own life. That doesn't even sound surprising to any of you. Go tell that to somebody in 1300. Go tell that to somebody in 1500. That's not true at all. I have been given my station by the, by the nature of my birth. I will live at that level. I'm going to die within 20 minutes, uh, within 20 miles of where I was born. If there's a war, I'm going to have to go fight for some cause I don't believe in. I will work the same fields or the same shop in the same industry that my father and his father and his father did before him. If you're a lady, I will marry who I'm told to marry. We will stay paupers forever. Like that's the life they were li- that they were living. And then the Reformation comes along, the Enlightenment comes along and says, that's not it at all. Go explore, take responsibility for your own life, make something of yourself. That's not white. That's just from the Western Hemisphere. And it's, it is ideas that's led to so much flourishing. And as we practice all of these ideas, including that very key nuclear family, that there seems to be an actual emphasis on trying to diminish now. We got to build up the nuclear family. It is the key to success for our boys and girls. It is the key to prosperity going, going forward. We have to build those things up because these are good ideas and they apply to everybody of every ethnicity. And if you come into these ideas, every... Because there are people in this world who are white, who don't follow these ideas. They come from other cultures. And any ethnicity follows after these, they're going to work. And here's why. Here's the key to everything. What I described there largely, not not all the way, but what I described there largely was biblical thinking and biblical wisdom. The wisdom of Proverbs, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. It is those concepts and principles that led a world into prosperity, and these are the principles and concepts that are timeless and eternal and will continue prosperity if we will not denigrate them like the Smithsonian did and try to diminish them as white. They are not white. They do not belong to white people. These are good ideas that will lead to success wherever they are tried. When we come back, the celebrity, I don't know what he's in, Nick Cannon, he hosts things. Uh, he's in some trouble uh, for some things he said. Uh, let's stay in the racial world, actually. So we'll do that when we come back, and we'll do a lot more on this week's Corey Act Show. Welcome back to the Corey Act Show. Find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Act. You will find me there because much like Tigger of Winnie the Pooh fame, I am the only one. I have a weird name, and I am easy to find. Someone else who's getting less easy to find is Nick Cannon. Apparently, he had a career on something called America's Got Talent, uh, some kind of host. I think Terry Crews now has that job, apparently. Uh, Nick Cannon also had, I think, some shows on MTV. He's, he's had a, a decent career, uh, and he recently got fired from some of his jobs for some things he said on a podcast. Now, what he got fired for was an old anti-Semitic trope. He said, basically, Jews, Jewish people, control the media and control the finances and the banks, and there's, the Jews have an outsized amount of power. So that's what he gets fired for, and that's fine. It's fine to get fired, I guess, for those 
words. I don't mind that at all because that is some really anti-Semitic stuff and it's connected to some dark things to say about Jews in the past. He didn't get fired for saying the this other thing I'm going to play for you, though. Maybe this the theme for today's show is bonkers. Because what I'm about to play for you is bonkers. It's crazy town, what Nick Cannon thinks. So he's going to give you now a very, uh, an opinion that very few people have. It's somewhat related to the, a group of people called the Black Hebrew Israelites that sort of think black people are like God's chosen. It's, it's a weird group. But Nick Cannon's got some weird stuff for you here. We're going to work through it piece by piece. So he got fired for the Jewish stuff. He didn't get fired for this. But it's worth going through, and not just for our entertainment value. Again, I promise I'll get to something more significant, just like with the Smithsonian story from moments ago. So let's get started here. Here's Nick Cannon telling us some very important racial information. When we talk about the power of melanated people, when we talk mm-hmm. about who we really are as guys and, and understanding right. that our melanin is so power and it connects us in a way that the reason why they fear black, the reason why they fear is because they the lack that they have of it. So, so real quickly, melanated people, people of color, and there's people like me, I guess, not of color, unmelanated, and it's my lack of melanin that makes me fear black people. Now, I would argue, sir... I don't know what you're talking about. I have no fear in me, but okay. Tell me more, Nick Cannon. So then when you see what, you know, Dr. Uh, Francis C. Wellesley talked about is that fear in that, 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 uh, Just genetic that, annihilation. that deficiency of mm-hmm. when you have a person that has, ha- has the lack of pigment, the right. lack of melanin, right. that they know that they will be annihilated. So therefore, however they got the power, they, they, they have the lack of compassion. So really quickly. Uh, non-melanated people. That's me. I'm apparently terrified of melanated people because I don't have the melanin, and so they scare me. I'm I'm learning a whole lot about myself. Mm-hmm. That mel- melanin comes with compassion. Melanin comes with soul that mm-hmm. we call it. We call it soul. We soul brothers and sisters. That's the melanin that connects us. Right. So the people that don't have it have are are. A li- and I'm, I'm going to say this carefully. Okay, hold on. Thus far, he's not been speaking carefully. So that's helpful. It's good to know. It, it was also good to know that lack of melanin, so white people, uh, we have no compassion. Okay, so lack of melanin is lack of compassion. It is melanin or color that gives you compassion. It is almost as if melanin is from Star Wars like a midichlorian. It's a superpower. One of them is compassion. But, you know, Nick's only been talking uncarefully, right? He's not been careful yet. And now he says, I want to say something here about non-melanated people, and I want to say it carefully. All right, so what's the careful thing that you want to say, Nick Cannon? <laughs> Are a little less. Uh, and, and, and We're a little less. I don't know any other term for that but racist. I see non-melanated people who don't have compassion and definitely fear people of melanin. They're a little less. I don't know any other word except that's a racist uh, attitude. 
where the term actually comes from, because I'm bringing it all the way back around okay. to, to Minister Farrakhan, to where they may not have the compassion or the the when they were sent to the mountains of Caucasus, when they when they didn't have the power of the sun that was that the sun then started to deteriorate mm -hmm. them. So then they're acting out of fear. So really quickly, this is an actual ancient. Uh, it's not ancient. It, uh, there's a theory that comes from ancient uh, that that goes back to ancient times. So it's, it's actually quite a new theory in human history. But it says here's the ancient narrative that white people went to places on the earth where the sun didn't shine a whole bunch. So up there in the mountains of Iceland, Finland, up there where sometimes some parts of the year the sun's not shining a lot. And so the sun didn't didn't get the white people. So when it actually did come, the sun was very harsh on white people. And so the the, the sun ended up making them making them hard. That's that's the theory that Nick Cannon's talking about here. They're acting out of low self-esteem. They're acting out of a, a deficiency. Mm -hmm. So therefore, the only way that they can act is evil. The only way they can, they, they have to rob, steal, rape, kill, and fight or flight okay. in, or, in order to survive. Exactly. So then the, the only thing, <laughs> the only thing, non-melanated people, white people, what else could they do? But rob, steal, kill, and destroy. What other option did they have, Nick? These people who didn't have what we had, and when I say we, I speak of the mm -hmm. melanated people. Right. They had to be savages. They had to be barbaric. They had, because they're in these Nordic mountains, they're in these rough uh, torrential environments. Mm. So they, they're acting as animals. Right. So they're the ones that are actually closer to animals. They're the ones that are actually the true savages okay so white people just from what we learned from nick cannon in two minutes because they don't have melanin they're jealous of and fearful of people with melanin melanin is like a midichlorian from star wars that makes you a jedi it also makes you compassionate and so white people don't have any compassion also because they went to a spot that was quite mountainous rugged with weird relationship to the sun are barbaric and animalistic. Well, learned a whole lot today, Nick. That's super de duper helpful. So, for real, is there anything to call that except racist? Well, of course not. That's a racist attitude. It's an anti-white racist attitude. But here's the more important point. I play it for you because it is it is a little funny because it's bonkers. But there's something bigger here. A a conservative point and a Christian worldview point that even goes back to the first segment. A dangerous thing, an immoral thing, an unbiblical thing to do is to think about people in categories. We are the people who understand that every individual deserves their own fair shake. That you don't take in preconceived notions of any ethnicity, any educational attainment group, any gender, we don't do that, any income group, to any interaction with any other human because every human deserves to represent themselves. They don't represent a group. Ruth did not need to... She, she, it was not fair in the Ruth story that she brings in her lineage, that she's a Moabitess. 
Well, no, Ruth is Ruth. You don't have to think about her as a Moabitess. It almost messed up Esther's story in the Bible a great deal that she's a Jew. Well, she shouldn't just have to be a Jew. She's Esther. She's a woman unto herself. These categories are there. They matter. They need to be acknowledged. And I mean that. They need to be acknowledged. But the ideal world doesn't allow your preconceived notion about any given group to taint your view of any given person. And what Nick Cannon shows here is something that's been true of, there's definitely been white people with the same attitudes. I, I can play for you. Maybe I should on some episode. I didn't prepare it for you. I can't play it for you now, but I, I've seen inside some, uh, let's call them Christian subgroups, but I don't know if we can actually call them Christian, that tries to cha- uh Trace back lineages to Noah's three sons. Oh, come on, Corey. Ham, Shem, <sighs> Japheth? J- J- Japheth? Uh, that's it. Sure. I think I said Ham, Shem, and Japheth. That sounds right. And they try to trace the races, the ethnicities, back to these three people, try to trace their, uh, their migration on the planet, and try to decide where all the different ethnic- ethnicities come from those three men, and those three men, one of them is good, one of them is evil, one of them is kind of in the middle. And they say some really racist, bonker stuff. Because, well, that that ethnicity group, they they descended from that group of Noah. So this thing that Nick Cannon's saying, it's not unique to him. It's not unique to any given to any given group. I was listening to a podcast documentary here recently of the Hong Kong protesters. And as much as I'm on Hong Kong's side of that conflict... Citizens of Hong Kong will say some crazy racist stuff about Chinese people. This is a state of humanity for all time. Ethnic strife, racial strife. It's just been around, right? And the Christian worldview answer to that is that every human being you come in contact with is uniquely made in the image of God. And they belong to some group some income group, ethnicity group, educational attainment group, to their family, they belong. But that's not who they are. Not at the core. So judge people by their character, and not like Nick Cannon here, not like some other deeply flawed theologies, but we think of everybody as an individual, and that's going to make us a much healthier society. Okay, before this break, let me do one more story that stays inside the racial discussion because that's a basically the country's been having two primary discussions over the last three four five maybe six months and that's been uh, COVID-19 which I have some COVID-19 thoughts for later and racial inequity and racial strife and so I want to play for you now a African-American cop a black cop up in Portland there's been all kinds of Weird stuff going on in Portland, even with law enforcement. Some stuff happening there with federal law enforcement I'm not a fan of, that I, I question the legality of. I'd like to see the judicial system actually work through what's happening there and if it's legal, but that's not the topic for today. I want you to hear from this African-American cop, this black cop, and his, re, his interactions that he's had with the protesters, the rioters, and the Antifa people up in Portland I don't have his name here. If I can find it while he's talking, I will tell you his name. But here is a black cop from Portland. It says something when you're at a Black Lives Matter protest 
you have more minorities on the police side than you have in a violent crowd. Well, first, it's Portland. Portland is about as lily white as it gets, so it's not too surprising. And second, ideas should be judged by their merit, not by how many people of color show up or how many white people show up. To make the point, we, we should just judge ideas by their merit. And you have white people screaming at black officers. You have the biggest nose I've ever seen. I so he's saying he got, he had a white person say, you've got a giant nose, which is obviously quite quite racist thing to say. It's also been a very weird look. I have seen the white people yelling at black cops thing about racism. That's been a weird world to watch. Got to see folks that really do want change like the rest of us that have been impacted by racism. And then I got to see those people get faded out by people that have no idea what racism is all about. Never experienced racism. They don't even know that the tactics that they are using are the same tactics that were used against my people. A lot of times, someone of color, black, Hispanic, Asian, come up to the fence and directly want to talk to me. Hey, what do you think about George Floyd? What do you think about what happened about this? I go up to the fence, someone white comes up, F the police, don't talk to him. Every time I try to have a conversation with someone that looks like me, someone white comes up and blocks him and tells him not to talk. And then right when I said that, this white girl popped right in front of her. She said, he just said that was going to happen. I said, straight up. I said, you know, I've been called the N-word. She's been called the N-word. Why are you talking to me this way? And why do you feel that she can't speak for herself to me? Why? I got to let him just speak for himself. I have very little to add to that. I will add only this. I am noticing that it is primarily white women. It, there's something happening inside the subculture of white women that is particularly sensitive around these matters. And they seem to be super de duper comfortable with lecturing and screaming at black men if they if those black men don't agree with where they stand on these these uh, these items. Uh, but I think this officer's experience was worth hearing from. When we come back, I have a COVID nineteen thought about policy, not about my own experience with it. Uh, I think is going to be unpopular with most people, but that's my favorite kind of opinion. And then I want to imagine an election situation. I want to imagine what the world will look like if Biden wins and what happens if Trump wins. Let's take some of the mystery and the sheen off of all that so everyone can have less fear. So we'll do that and hopefully more when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act Show. Guys, I've been quite economical with the time on the show this week. We're moving through with the proper clip. I'm not wasting your time. At least I don't think so. So I'm quite satisfied with where we are. And you know where we are? We're actually closing up year number five of the show. That's what this episode is. It's the last one in because uh, we started in the first Aug- the first Saturday in August in 2015. So 16, 17, 18, 19... Yeah, we're, I go, we're closing up season, yeah, closing up year five. And so, for those of you that have been here for a long time, thank you. To all those that left in 2016 because it made you mad with the Trump stuff, bye. I'm just kidding. I wish you guys would come back, but whatever. So, uh, hey guys, next next week, brand new year, brand new year for the show. Uh, so, thanks for being here. Let's get back to work. I don't want to get too sentimental about those things. Here's 
Here is a stat I came across that I want to I want to inspire all of us with it. And you might say, Corey, statistics are not inspiring. And I say, nay, nay. Statistics are very inspiring. Statistics are facts. And properly put in their context, you can let the facts affect your feelings and, and understand what's actually happening through data and not anecdote. I can now use me as a really good example of this. I had COVID-19. I suffered through it. None of my sufferings change the data. I'm just one anecdote. I'm just one story. And so when it comes to decision-making, you still have to go with the broad spectrum of information. So here is a thing I am noticing in COVID policy discussion on the internet. Everyone thinks they're an expert. When it's masks, you're brilliant, and those who think differently than you are morons. When it's shutting down the economy or opening the economy, the people who agree with you are brilliant. The people that don't agree with you are morons. I'm not talking about you, the listener. I know you people are smarter. But this is the average American. Now I want to give you a stat to prove this. I want to establish this. Maybe we should all just be humble. How about this? There's no such thing as an expert in an unprecedented event. When something has never happened... There can't be experts in it. There can be experts on uh, theory. They, they theorized and maybe wargamed it, but no one's an expert on a thing that's never happened before. And let me encourage you and myself through the stat to give all of our opinions and thoughts regarding COVID-19 policy, whether that be what your church does or doesn't do, what Walmart asks us to do or not do, what your local government ordinance passes, what states do, Governors and presidents, let's all assume maybe we're not the smartest person in the room. Let's assume that. Here's my stat I want to give you. Maybe the most, I would say, I would argue, the most important stat is deaths per 100,000. To know how well or how badly a place has dealt with COVID-19 per 100,000 or per 1 million, if you want to get a little less granular, but I'm going to use 100,000 here. How many of your people have died per 100,000 people that you have? And you do it that way because it's not fair to say to California, you've had this many people die. And then to say to Idaho, you've had this tiny amount die. Well, no one lives in Idaho. And I think it's 45 million people live in California. So you have to do it per 100,000. In that vein, here we go. In the United States of America, these are the states that have had the highest deaths per 100,000. Number one, New Jersey. Number two, New York. Number three, Connecticut. Number four, Massachusetts. Number five, Rhode Island. Number six, Washington, D.C. Number seven, Louisiana. Eight, Michigan. Nine, Illinois. Ten, Pennsylvania. Eleven, Maryland. 12, Delaware, let's get the top 15 here, uh, 13 is Mississippi, 14 is Indiana, 15 is Arizona. The state that's getting a lot of hate right now is Florida. They're down at around 22 or 23. Of all those states I just read to you, in the top 15 there, they handled COVID-19 wildly differently. Some shut down super early. Some waited weeks until after the others had shut down. 
Some have been heavy on masks. Some have not been heavy on masks. Some have had a lot of testing per 100,000. Some have not. There's been a lot of different handlings between, for example, Michigan and Louisiana. They're both Democrat governor states, but Louisiana and Michigan handled this very differently. But Louisiana's had 75 deaths per 100,000, and Michigan's had 64. It's barely any different. You know, it's, it's worth saying, where everyone says it's so terrible in Arizona. How, in, in Arizona, they had 34 deaths per 100,000. In, in a place like Massachusetts, it's, been, it's 122 deaths per 100,000. And they handled it vastly differently. And Arizona's going to probably catch up to Massachusetts at some point in some way. But the numbers are not so broad, are not so starkly off that you can say, well, that one did it better than the other. You think about states as different as Colorado and Georgia. Colorado run exclusively by Democrats when it comes to state government. Georgia is a totally red state. And they handled this thing quite differently, except for maybe the open and shutdown dates. Georgia and Colorado track pretty closely on when they shut down and when they opened. But the emphasis on mask wearing and the rules, uh, Georgia is perceived to have been uh, more more open than Colorado was, but they had very similar rules, but in some, some significant ways quite different. But thus far, Colorado has 30 deaths per 100,000 and Georgia has 29 despite having handled COVID-19 quite differently. So maybe in every discussion, we all just go in humble and recognize, man, there's been a lot of different things tried, a lot of different emphases laid out, and it's worked out in different ways in different places. So yeah, let's, uh, let's have some humility around it. That's my argument, is that everyone's trying their best, guys, and let's have that attitude. A quick political point, and then I would like to take some listener feedback if I can get to it. Uh, so, uh, I, want, I want to do a political thought experiment with you. Because I, I notice in politics, most people are driven by fear. I actually think this is one of the big issues of life. A lot of people make decisions driven by fear. We allow fear to drive us. And politically there is on the right a fear of the left. They're terrified if the left gets in power, and so they make decisions based on fear. Equally on the left, they're terrified of people on the right. They're scared of them, and so they make their decisions not based on principles or right or wrong. They make their decisions based on fear, and politically, people make a lot of decisions based on fear. So let's actually imagine what happens. I'll give you two scenarios. What happens if Trump loses to Biden? When I think forward, here's what I think happens. I'm basically positive Democrats would also win the Senate in that scenario. And they would put away the filibuster. There's there's a lot of appetite for it on the left. The filibuster was this great idea that the founders came up with that on purpose slows stuff down. On purpose requires consensus. The idea of the founders would be Man, if you can't get 60% of senators, not 65%, 75%, if you can't get 60% of senators to agree on something, then you need to go back and try again. You need to work on that idea. You need to compromise better. We should never have a system where 50% plus one of the people can force their will on 49.999% of the people. That shouldn't be. 
But I think they would do away with it, and here's what would happen. You would get the left thinking that a rejection of Trump was an affirmation of their ideas. And they would be misreading that. Know this, if Donald Trump loses, it's, it's his rejection. People are rejecting him. They're not rejecting conservatism or conservative ideas. They would be rejecting him on a personal level. And so I think if Trump loses, they do away with the filibuster and they go bonkers. We'll go bonkers as the theme of the show on climate legislation, on gun legislation, healthcare legislation. I could even see something around reparations being passed. And the left goes crazy thinking their win was an endorsement of their ideas. And you know what would happen? There'd be a midterm backlash. Do you know how I know? Because it happens all the time. That's how it's happened. In 2006, so George W. Bush wins re-election. He considers it not a, um, a, a, a repudiation of John Kerry, but as an affirmation of his agenda. And so he goes after privatizing Social Security, which I liked, but it was very, very risky. And he went after, was it uh, immigration reform? He went after those two things, and he gets shellacked in 2006. He overinterpreted his own win. Barack Obama overinterpreted his own win in 2008, and he thought he could do Obamacare. And then what happened? He got his tail whipped in historic fashion. The most seats ever won in a midterm election. Republicans sweep into power all over the place on the back of the reaction to the Affordable Care Act. It happens on both sides. And if Democrats win here, they're going to overinterpret their win and they will create a gigantic backlash against them, both in midterms and then in the, uh, in the following presidential election. So that's my... That's my uh, interpretation of what would happen if Trump were to lose. If, if he wins, I think you just get basically a lot of the same marginal change. You get maybe, maybe you get a tax cut made permanent. I don't know. We've not had an agenda there. Um, you probably get some social unrest. Uh, but, and then a couple conservative agenda items over those next four years. Um, and I, I wonder politically if, if it, would, if it would tell the left, you can't be crazy. This crazy thing you're doing, this causing unrest thing, you can't do that and win. You actually have to put forward some ideas and stuff. Um, all right. So last couple things here will be listener-driven. Cody, who listens, and he also has his own show that I've been on, you should listen to, the Westminster Doxology Podcast. He wrote on a Facebook post uh, that I, he thought I handled masks and mask wearing with some charity and some grace. But he asked, well, what would you say to someone like me who's just skeptical of their effectiveness? Uh, first, I respect that. There, there actually is a... There's decent science in every direction and with reputable people showing confidence and lack thereof in it, when it comes to effectiveness of masks. I would say on its face logic, just prima facie, it makes some sense to me that you would mitigate germs, that what's coming out of your mouth when unencumbered, is going to get into air circulation and get into someone else's stuff a lot easier than if you cover your mouth with something when you're in close quarters. It also makes sense to me the six feet would do that. 
that space would do that. It doesn't have to be a mask. Space can do the same thing a mask would do, just again, prima facie on the face. The logic of it just makes sense to me. But that's as far as I can go on that argument on masks. Here was the last one I wanted to do. I got more feedback than I thought I was going to get. It just was delayed feedback on the Calvinism thing I brought up. And I got like an inter- very interesting argument from somebody who's, who said, who argued against Calvinism not biblically but statistically, with the argument being, well, then wouldn't you expect there to be the same amount of conversions over time and space that around the world and throughout time there would be the same number of, or at least arguably the, close to the same number of Christians in all over the world. I would argue no, now that I thought about it. I thought it was a very interesting way to argue it, argue it uh, qua- quantitatively instead of biblically. Um, here's, I just want to give this illustration to finish up the show today, and we'll call it. I actually find that people who don't think of themselves as Calvinists, they talk about their own salvation as Calvinists. They will talk about their own redemption as God's doing. And that they were, a, it's, a, it's a wretch like me who had no chance that God reached down and saved a wretch like me. Because there's something internal about that the, hum, the, the humility of redemption that you recognize that a bunch of people who are morally as upstanding or more upstanding than I am, they've all heard the same message and they didn't respond to it in faith and repentance. They heard the same thing and they didn't respond in faith and repentance. It's not, but, but, but I think internally people know, and it's not because I'm awesome. It's not because I'm better than them. God did something miraculous in me for me to respond to the gospel. It wasn't anything good in me. It was God being graceful to me, giving grace to me, that I would respond to the gospel in faith and repentance. The issue I find is people who will talk about their own salvation as a Calvinist, they won't talk about anyone else's as a Calvinist. Like, they were the only ones who weren't good enough to respond, but everyone else is super awesome, and they can respond in grace and, uh, in, excuse me, in faith and repentance. I'm all out of time. Uh, but I would like to talk about this some more. I might do a special episode on it, um, because I got some other responses that now I don't have time to get to. So, thanks for listening to The Corey Act Show. We'll be back with another new edition of it next week as we start year number five of the show. Until next time, everybody, peace and love.